Uh, you may be wondering what that has to do with anything, but before I begin, I want to uh, thank my brother-in-law and friend, Matt Connery, for preaching the last four weeks, and uh, Matt did a great job. It blessed me, and I know it blessed a lot of you, and uh, on top of that, it made me want to be a better preacher, and on top of that, it really... Uh, like a lot of the work you, uh, many of you have done over the last several weeks, it, I think it's set us up for this next year. It's allowed us to get ahead. It's allowed us to, to really look at some things and, and make some choices and, and do some things that we wouldn't have been able to do. Uh, and so thank you, Matt. I, uh, you did a heck of a good job. Um, when I was in high school, my freshman year, we had these projects, and they were, it was, my whole freshman year history class was just four projects. And I remember that I did uh, a baseball one, and I don't remember, oh, and I remember that I, I stole, I hope they don't take away my high school diploma for this, but I used one of my dad's college projects uh, that he had got an A on in college, and it actually was the lowest grade that I got on any of my projects in this class. That's a true story. And the other one that I remember is, uh, was a medieval times cookbook. Now, I'm 31 years old in August, and I uh, had high school during the internet's existence, but it was like we used it to use AOL Instant Messenger, and that was kind of the extent. I still had uh, a CD version of Encyclopedia Britannica. We still had encyclopedias that were books that we used. And so I, I plan on doing this Medieval Times cookbook, and I know that it's due soon. And at about 8 p.m. the night before, I realize that it's due the next morning at 7.35 a.m. That's not good. I mean, you don't just like find medieval times recipes. Like those aren't laying around. Now it would be easy with the internet. But I had no idea what to do. I was totally unprepared. And thankfully, I have nice parents. My dad and Sandy stayed up all night with me. We got it done. We went to a FedEx and printed it, and I got a fine grade on it. But it was this moment, maybe more than any other, and my dad will tell you there's a ton of moments in my school life where I just procrastinated so long that it was no longer procrastination. It was simply being unprepared. Um, in my preaching class in college, uh, we had a main sermon, and we had spent basically all semester kind of building towards these sermons, and uh, it, it's the majority of your grade. You give a sermon. It was only a 15-minute sermon. Don't you wish I still held to that rule? And then uh, you, you would be critiqued by your classmates and the professor at the same time, and then you would get a grade, and, and basically you felt as if you were kind of determining whether or not you could ever be a pastor, the very thing that you were spending $20,000 to become, and this kid gets up, and he looks at us, and he just says, I'm sorry, I'm not ready. And it was one of the worst things I've ever experienced. I wanted to punch the guy for not being ready if I didn't feel so bad for him. Because then our professor, he goes, hey, great honesty, but you still have to do the sermon, basically. And, and then he turns it over to the class to critique him. And we're just like, what do you say about this? And it was this horrible moment that left you going, how in the world, how could you possibly not be ready for this? 
I mean, this is the thing that we've been working towards. What have you been doing every day in this class? Why are you not ready for this moment right here? And I think we've all had those moments that we just realized we weren't prepared for. Another one in my life, uh, just after the towers were bombed on September 11th, 13 years ago or whatever, uh, I w- went to do a Bible study. It was really my first ministry gig as I, I taught a retirement home Bible study. And I went to do it and, and normally uh, there was like two or three people that would show up and, and I would give them a Bible study that was uh, not very well prepared actually. And, and, and so I show up and we usually met in this kind of multi-purpose room that was uh, probably eh, bigger than the stage that I'm standing on now, so plenty of room for two or three people. And one of the supervisors or administrative assistants at there at Lancaster Village looks at me and says, they couldn't fit in the room, so we moved them outside. Why? <laughs> Did they grow? I mean, like, how could they not fit in the room? And so she leads me outside and I look up and there is every person that could possibly be uh, at this Bible study in this building because it's assisted living and retirement and, and every person that could possibly be there is sitting outside and they're looking, 70, 80, 90, 100 year old people are looking at me for some type of encouragement for some type of word that can summarize and spiritualize the things that we were feeling and thinking after the towers went down in New York. And I was unprepared. I mean, I, 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 as a 18, 19 year old, I think I just turned 18, uh, you can't even grasp. I, I didn't grasp until that moment. Like, this is a big deal. For them, they had been through Pearl Harbor. They knew how it was going to alter our country. And I walked out and, and thought, wow, I'm totally unprepared for this. You know, this week, uh, our, our VBS theme was, was that of secret agents. We got to walk around calling each other secret agent all week, which was kind of fun. We could continue that in, in church if we want to. Uh, and so if you would like to call me secret agent Chad, I'd be okay with that. And uh, I don't think secret agents actually usually do that, though. It's kind of a funny thing. Um, I'm secret, secret agent James Bond. Thank you for having me. No, but, but, but we did that all week, and it was fun. And, and one of the things that's really key to being a secret agent, we know this from the movies. I don't know this about real life, but from the movies and TV shows, it is preparedness. I mean, secret agents are always, if they're going to be good at their jobs, uber prepared. They are over prepared. They are so prepared that, that really it seems nothing could possibly go wrong. And that was kind of the theme this week, discover, decide, defend. But I thought about the secret agents that I know, and one is James Bond. And you never see like James Bond just go, I'm going to throw on these normal clothes and show up and we'll see what happens. Hopefully I'll get that nuclear bomb back and, and everything will go right. It's like he goes through the process of getting the super cool weapons and he goes through the process of getting uh, his, his, uh, his mission and he goes through the process of getting the, uh, the car so that it's tricked out and it can do all the special things. And he makes sure that he goes into these situations totally 100% prepared. I don't know if you know the show Burn Notice, but it's a show that we watched for a while. It kind of started to uh, 
falter out about season four, in my opinion. You can't tell the same story every single week and expect people to watch it. But the story is a little bit uh, James Bondish. He was a secret agent that got blacklisted, and now he goes around kind of helping people in these day-to-day things while trying to get back into uh, the CIA. And, and in the show, he has his team, and every time they have to help the person, they go through a planning process, and then as the plan unfolds, you go, wow, they really knew what they were doing. You've heard it in the A-team. If you're older and you don't know Burn Notice, but you know the A-team, I love it when a plan comes together, right? And so you see with people who go on missions, they always need to be prepared. And that was really, in essence, what we were teaching the kids this week, that they needed to discover, decide, and defend the truth about who Jesus really is. And I think that when a secret agent goes on their mission, what takes place is that they need to discover, they need to decide, and they need to then defend themselves. I mean, they discover what they need to do. They get the intel. I sound like a secret agent now. They get the information that they need about the people and the places that they need to go, and they get the information about themselves, and then they make a decision about the plan of action they're going to take, and they decide where they're gonna go and when they're gonna go and how they're gonna go and who they're gonna be. They make a decision, and then they go in and they do their best to defend the country or themselves or whatever, Entity they are working for. And, and here's the reality, and maybe this is quite the change, but when it comes to what happens after death and decisions about Jesus, people are less like secret agents and more like me doing a freshman project on medieval times recipes. There's an attitude about eternity that exists that is dangerous. It's unprepared. I mean, people say things like, I'll deal with it when I get closer to it. Or whatever happens, happens. Or who cares? And they never, and this is crazy to me, but they never make a choice to actually discover, to actually decide about Jesus, and then for some of us who have, to actually defend him. And I think it's crazy. To me, kind of being flippant about eternity is like walking into enemy territory, just going, hey, who cares? Maybe they'll shoot me, maybe they won't. I don't know how it's going to be. And this morning, what I want to call you to is simple. I just want to call you, and, and this will be different categories for everybody, but, but to discover and decide and defend the truth of who Jesus really is. For some of you in this room, maybe you just need to discover Jesus. And let me just we'll jump into that one. I, I, Postmodernism, which we live in right now, that's the era of history after modernism, uh, is very different than its predecessor. Modernism in that era, era of history was very logical. It was very focused on the sciences. It was very focused on knowledge. And people in my generation, people who are postmodern by nature of being younger, have said, well, all of that hasn't gotten us that far. It's left us with war, it's left us with tragedy, it's left us with a bad economy here in America, it has left us with a lot of things that we don't really like. And so we've seen this return to the arts, we've seen a return to being feeling-based, we've seen a return to relationship and story over bullet point and intellect. And 
There's a lot of things that are good about postmodernism, a lot of things that I like, like a return to the arts and a return to story. It's one of the things I thought Matt did brilliantly and uh, just telling stories to you over the last four weeks in his sermons. And you liked it and you were drawn in, right? But if we lived 50 years ago, Matt would have stood up and said, here's point A, point B, and point C, and you would have liked that just the same. And so some things are good, but there's some things about postmodernism that aren't so good, and one of those is that people have placed really an overemphasis on feeling versus logic to the point where people go, eh, the things I believe don't need to be logical at all. I mean, I just can believe whatever I want. I have a friend, and I had a conversation with her that I, I've actually talked about in sermons before, but, and this isn't going to be exact to her beliefs, but she basically said this, flying unicorns might be the god of the world, but there is no god. It's not logic. I mean, you got to pick a belief there, right? I mean, in my logical kind of college-educated mind, like you, either there's a god or there's not. You can't say flying unicorns are the god and there's no god. And then, and this is the kicker right here, and this defines postmodernism in a lot of ways and their view of kind of feeling over logic. I know my views contradict themselves, but it's just the way I feel about things. Now, that's something that I was told. I remember being in college, and they're like, postmodern movement, postmodern movement. And they always painted it as bad because when you're at a conservative Christian college, everything that's new is bad, uh, pretty much. And, uh, and so uh, it was always bad, and I've seen the, the good of it, but this is bad. I mean, this is, this is not helpful. It's not important. And really what it is is just pulling the wool over your eyes, burying your head in the sand and saying, yeah, I don't really know what to believe, and so I'm just going to pretend that I have beliefs. Now, here's the thing. That can sound really, really nice. It used to be this theory that's out there, and now it's surrounding us. Um, and maybe because you're a churchgoer and you have church friends, you're like, nobody ever thinks like that. Well, go down the street, meet somebody who doesn't go to church, and ask them about their belief system, and you'll find contradictions, and they won't care. And they'll say, well, that guy can believe that, and this other person can believe something that's totally different, and I think they can both be right. It's real. It's around us. Now, here's the deal. It all sounds nice. I mean, everybody believing what they want, that's so friendly, right? I mean, it's, it's acceptance and it's love and it's, it's nice and it feels good. Everybody can be right all the time. It feels nice. But it's not real. And every single person knows it's not real. It might be blanketed in some good words like that sound smart and intelligent, but we know that it's not real. And we know this in just so many ways. There are so many ways we know that not everybody's truth can be true. But one of the ways we know it is because when people deny the kind of general consensus of truth, we call them crazy, right? I mean, we never look at people that say, I see I see dinosaurs right out there right now. Look, there's one over there. It just crawled behind that post. We never look at people like this and go, man, that is their truth. That's cool. We lock them up, right? I mean, that's what we do with them. Or how about this? Disease. If somebody gets cancer, doctor says they have cancer, test results show they have cancer, they feel like they have cancer, but they look at you and go, I'm just going to not believe I have cancer. So it's gone now. 
You look at them and you say, no, you need to get help. You need to get treatment. This isn't just gone because in your brain you you think it's gone or you want it to be gone or you feel like it's gone or whatever it might be. You still have cancer and you need to do something about it. You see, while it's nice to be able to say everybody's right all the time, the, the reality is there's people who are wrong. Another way that is pretty easy to see is, is in is when somebody gets punched in the face and they, and this is C.S. Lewis's example um, pretty much, get punched in the face and not, not a single person goes, well, you just believed that was okay and so it was okay for you to do it. Everybody, every single person goes, you wronged me. You wronged me and in essence they're saying what you did, no matter what you believe about it, is wrong. You can't be right in this situation. And so we know, we know, everybody knows. I know you know, even if you're the most postmodern thinking person out there and you want to just say, I can believe whatever I want, you know somewhere inside of you when you take a deep look and you sit down alone and you're not trying to fit in or look cool or accept everybody, but you're really just thinking like, what is real? You know that there are things that are true and there are things that are not true. This is why Jesus is worth discovering. Because Jesus makes some very, very serious claims about himself. Let me just give you it in just like a sentence and a half. Jesus is the son of God who died to take away the sins of the world. He was raised from the dead so that death could be conquered. And everyone who has a chance to live in eternity in heaven must do so through a belief in him. That's what Jesus claimed. That's what the Bible claims. And that's what I claim. Now that's one of those things that has to be right or wrong. I mean, I am saying out loud, Jesus is saying, the Bible is saying, either you believe in Jesus and go to heaven or you don't believe that Jesus is the savior of the world and you go to hell. That's right or wrong. There's no wishy-washy. There's no, you can kind of believe that and it's okay for everybody else not to believe that. You, you either accept that or you deny that. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. But here's, this, this is so sad to me. People who even know that claim, that claim by Jesus, that claim by Christians, that claim by God through his holy word, They don't take any time to really discover whether or not it's true or not true. And they do it for reasons that that seem so big. But the reasons aren't as big as the claim Jesus made. I mean, it's like this. A Christian or a bunch of Christians hurt me. And so I'm never going to take a moment or a lot of moments to discover whether or not Jesus was right and whether or not what he claimed was true and whether or not he was the son of God and whether or not he is the savior of the world. There are so many people just walking around on our earth right now, maybe you, maybe people sitting right in front of me right now who have never discovered Jesus, whether he's true or not, that's not the point, but not taking a serious look at Jesus because they look at their parents and they go, man, my parents liked Jesus. They were horribly horribly mean to me and I will never take time to examine the truth of Jesus to discover if he is real if he really is the savior of the world man that's sad that's like saying I had a bad experience with a doctor once and so I'm not going to find out if I have cancer 
Don't throw Jesus out because you had a bad experience with somebody who claimed to follow him. The other reason people don't ever take time to discover Jesus is, is that it's the norm of their subculture and, 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 and rejecting Jesus just feels normal to them, whether that be your family or the people at work or your political party or whatever it might be, kind of in your subculture of life, it's just normal to reject Jesus. And so while you might know these claims, Jesus claimed to be able to give me eternal life, you just go, well, it's normal to reject him. And so I'm never going to take any time to discover the reality of who he really is. That's sad. Matt's told me, same Matt who preached to you the last four weeks, that he has conversations with people. They know that he loves apologetics, which is the study of how to prove Christianity. And they will say to him, I have these serious questions about Christianity. And Matt will say to them, if I can answer all of your questions in a satisfactory way, will you become a Christian? And they look at him and they say, probably not. And he says, well, I'm probably not going to answer them then. But it's like, stick my head in the sand. My subculture doesn't believe it. I'll argue about it, but I'm never going to take any time to discover whether or not it is true. The reality is people, some people who are even open to Christianity don't take time to discover who Jesus really is. They look at Jesus, and in Joshua McDowell's words, they look at him as a great teacher, or they look at him as a great leader, and they say, yeah, nice guy, really just a great guy. But it's ignorance. Being able to, just claiming Jesus was some nice guy that's not the savior of the world or not God in human form is ignorance because Jesus made claims to be the God and king of the universe. And Joshua McDowell in his book, Jesus More Than a Carpenter, basically says, look, when you start to discover the things that Jesus says, it only leaves you with three choices. You either declare that Jesus was a liar that Jesus was a lunatic or that he is Lord of the earth. And there are too many people, hopefully not you, but maybe you, who just refuse to discover the reality of Jesus and you're comfortable with this little box that you have put Jesus in. Yeah, he's a good teacher. He's a great hippie that just loved everybody and just made everybody feel good about themselves. He was a great leader that really wanted to get rid of those oppressive Roman people that were there at the time. Man, if somebody claims to be God, then you have to, if you're logical at all, discover the reality of it. Most of the time, it's really easy, right? I mean, we know that there's been people who have made claims to be God. There's a guy in Australia right now that actually claims that he is Jesus, who has come back, and it's pretty easy based on their lives and, and the things that they do and the things that they call people to and how it doesn't align with Scripture to go, nope, not true. But it wasn't that way with Jesus because when he wandered the earth, people looked at him and said, man, something is different about you. You kind of seem like God in human form. You kind of seem like the son of God. You kind of seem like somebody who is king of the universe. And so for some people in this room, I just, this is my encouragement. Don't buy into the lie that nothing is true or everything is true, however you want to look at it. But instead, take time to discover the reality of who Jesus is. I mean, that should start, ought to start with opening up a Bible and saying, what did Jesus really claim about himself? What did he say? If you don't believe in the truth of scripture and you go, well, that's 
hogwash. That's not something that I can trust at all. We, we have some stuff on our blog that you can read and you can look at. And, and scripture's pretty trustworthy. The guys that wrote it about Jesus weren't painting some picture of Jesus that wasn't true, at least in their minds. And so read it and see what these eyewitnesses, these guys who walked around with Jesus, said that Jesus said and determine whether or not you think he's real. And I don't mean real like he existed. Just about every smart person on the planet thinks Jesus existed. Uh, But I mean real in in his claims, real in in him being savior and king of the universe. Now there's other people in this room that that have discovered Jesus. You've been in church, you know about him, you've heard about him all your life, you've thought about him, you're here, so you've sang about him probably. But you've never really decided to follow Jesus. My grandma told me a story uh, recently about a a man she used to attend church with before we stole her away here because she's my grandma. And and this guy had been an active part of their church forever and ever. He was a greeter at their church. He was well-respected in their church. And then one Sunday she showed up for church and he was giving his testimony about how he had just become a Christian talking like 15 years at this church, well-respected, known, serving the church, knew all about Jesus. And 15 years later, she shows up at church and this guy is saying, I knew all about Jesus, but I had never decided to accept his gift of salvation, to say, Jesus, I know that you died on a cross so that my sins, the things I've done wrong could be forgiven and to give him my life. He had never done that. And I think that a lot of churches are filled with people like that. The majority of people in our country are people who have discovered Jesus. They know all about him. They grew up with him. They've heard about him. That's less and less, but still a majority of people, they know all about Jesus, but they've never decided to follow him. They might check a box that says Christian when the census comes by or when somebody's taking a survey so that we can see the amount of Christians in our country, 90% still or so claim to be Christians in our country. But if you really talk to those people, they've only discovered Jesus, but they have not decided to give their lives to him and accept his gracious gift of salvation that he offered on the cross. Man, it is, it is something that is so important to me That our church not be a church filled with people who have simply discovered Jesus, but people who have decided to give themselves to Jesus. And when I say give yourself to Jesus, that's a a term that I think I use a lot. And it's very, I try not to use ridiculously Christian type language that makes no sense to the rest of the world. But give yourself to Jesus might be one of those things because that has no meaning unless you've grown up around church. And what I mean by that is what we teach kids at VBS and we call it the ABCs of VBS and that is simply this. We admit to God that we are sinners. That's the easiest part of this, right? I mean, you've done bad stuff and you know that. We believe that Jesus is God's son who died on a cross for the sin of people and then rose again on a day that we call Easter. That's the B. And then, and this is key, we confess that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. By Lord, we mean ruler of the universe who deserves our full respect, who deserves our full obedience, who deserves our full love and our undivided efforts in our lives. The ABCs, I think, does a great job for kids, but I think a lot of people in our churches that that go to church even every Sunday just need to know that, look, 
even though you have discovered the truth about Jesus, it doesn't make it so that one day you'll go to heaven unless you have decided to follow Jesus by admitting that you are a sinner, believing that Jesus died and rose again and confessing Jesus as both Savior and Lord. Now here's, here's the, the, the reality. I think that if you are a person who has discovered Jesus, then you have to make a decision about him. I think most people don't make a decision yes or no about Jesus because they've never taken any time to discover him. But when Jesus is saying things like, I'm the son of God. I came to take away the sins of the world. I am Lord. I am king of kings. I am the one that you are to be obedient to. If you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross daily. I demand your full obedience and full respect. You can't go, I'm wishy-washy on what he really is looking for. You decide yes or you decide no. You either say, that guy was a crazy, lunatic liar, or you say, Jesus, I give myself to you. I confess you as the Lord of the earth who saved me from my sins. Jesus, and this is so funny that 2,000 years later, like we have this kind of, we, we allow for Jesus to be this middle ground and we want to kind of play with this idea of Jesus. And even in churches, we don't want to offend people with Jesus. He was a pretty offensive guy. I mean, he walked around just saying what was true and, and a lot of people hated him and rejected him and wanted him dead. And those people were far more honest than the majority of Americans today who go, yeah, that Jesus character seemed like a pretty good dude, but I'm not gonna confess him as Lord. Let me just give you a few verses that show you really how much of a decision is required when it comes to Jesus. John three sixteen, you probably know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's no middle ground. You decide to believe and you get eternal life or you decide to not believe and not give yourself to Jesus and you don't have eternal life. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus, as I just said, turns to his disciples and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He's saying you must die to yourself if you want life in me. There's no wishy-washiness. There's no like half-heartedness. There's no like, yeah, Jesus, nice guy. No, it's either you're in or you're out. Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You won't be saved if you don't. And so when you have discovered the truth about what Jesus said and who he claimed to be and what the Bible declares and what other Christians are saying, then you need to make a decision. And I would prefer it if you decided to be in or out. I would prefer it if you decided to be in, but at least don't be wishy-washy playing with the idea saying, yeah, I'll probably go to heaven someday because I know a little bit about Jesus. Either make a decision to accept him and love him and treat him as the Lord and God of the universe or say, no, it's not for me. Defend is the final part and there's many of you in this room I know who have discovered Jesus and you have also decided about Jesus maybe a long time ago. But you should also be ready to defend Jesus. 
We want people to know the love that we have for Jesus. We want people to know how great he is. We want people to know that he is Lord and Savior. And our scripture for VBS this week was from 1 Peter 3. And I just quickly want to look at a few verses that surround it. And I think it gives us three ways that we can defend the reality of Jesus. So that when people are like, I need to discover Jesus. And I need to make a decision about him. They can look at our lives and they can go, hmm. Seems like it must be true because of the way that they live their lives. First Peter 3, 13 and 14. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And then in verse 17, Peter says, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing Evil. And so Peter's point is his first point. He says, look, I want you to know that one of the ways you can defend Jesus and the reality of Jesus and the truth of Jesus is by the way in which you live your life, doing right even when you suffer. The truth is this is like the earliest defense of Jesus that there is and it's probably the best defense that we have. You see, Jesus' disciples, his friends and followers, when Jesus died and hung on a cross, they, and maybe you forget this part of the story, they didn't run around just going, let's start churches now. Let's just tell everybody about Jesus. They actually huddled up in a room, scared to death that they were going to be hurt or killed too. They're sitting there and they're hanging out and they're thinking, do we go back to our jobs? What do we do? We're in big trouble. Then Jesus rises again And what happens to the disciples? They run around the earth, which was the whole world to them, telling people about Jesus no matter if they are beaten up, if they are flogged, if they are made fun of, if they are kicked out of their friends and family circles. And ultimately, 11 of those original disciples were killed because they refused to not talk about Jesus. They refused not to do what was right, even though it was going to harm them. And the truth is today, the greatest evidence still is when people refuse to do something wrong and they continue to be obedient even, even when it is going to cost them something great, perhaps their lives. When you look at Christianity and the way it spreads, what you quickly find is that Christianity disintegrates when persecution is not prevalent in a country. There is always, in the lack of persecution, a movement away from Christianity. But when you look at countries where Christians are persecuted horribly, Christianity grows and grows and grows and grows. Today, China, one of the fastest growing places for Christianity in the world. And also look, lots of Christians in North Korea now, they guess and they can kind of figure out. You look at some of the African countries which have tribes that that worship other gods and have Muslim in, in North Africa, Muslim influences. Christianity is booming in Africa right now. But in America, we see less and less people making a decision to give Jesus themselves to become Christians. I think that the number one reason for that is because when people have to say, I'm going to defend the reality of Christianity even with my life, with my own very skin. It defends Jesus to everybody who's watching. How can you watch somebody die for something that they believe in and not go, wow, maybe there's some truth to that. Peter also says this, but in your hearts reveal Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have 
but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, this verse is famous, and oftentimes it's like, well, learn more, learn more, learn more. That's kind of how we treat 1 Peter 3.15. Like, I need to know a lot, and then I can defend the truth of Jesus, and if I just learn a lot of apologetics, which is actually the, the um, English version of the Greek word that is defend in this sentence, if I just know enough. But notice Peter doesn't say win arguments. Peter says you personally need to be ready to give a reason for Jesus and the hope that you have in him. In fact, Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. This isn't like, let me tell you why you are wrong, you idiots. I know so much more than you. I have been to school and I have learned and I'm gonna just bulldozer you over with my knowledge and you will never, ever, ever, ever be able to, to, to come back on the things that I'm about to say to you because I am smarter and cooler and more awesome than you and I know more about my faith than you do. Peter doesn't say that. But that's how it's treated sometimes in Christian circles. And there's a weird phenomenon because that doesn't work in our world today at all because people don't care about logic as much as they do story. And so Peter does not say, you need to have all the answers. Peter says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have when people ask for a defense. Let me just give you four kind of questions that I think should be part of your story, that should be part of your defense when somebody asks for one. I mean, who is Jesus? If you're a Christian, you know. You could just say the ABCs. I believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. If you're a Christian, then you know who Jesus is. You might not be able to say it in the most theological terms, but you understand that he is God's son who came and died on a cross and then got out of the grave. That's all part of being a Christian. Here's another question. What makes you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? What you believe? Is it who you've given your life to? Is it your love for Jesus? Here's another question. Why are you a Christian? What led to that moment when you said, I do confess Jesus as Lord as Savior? Was it sin in your life? Was it hurt that you had? Was it uh, the joy that you experienced in the midst of other Christians? Was it a family member who led you? I mean, why are you a Christian? And don't just say, because I want to go to heaven someday. That's a result of Christianity. That's part of really what Jesus did. But like, why are you a Christian? And then the last question is, what does God do for you as a Christian? Why is that important on a daily basis? If you can answer these four questions, and I hope all of you can, maybe you haven't really taken time and it's not written down anywhere or anything like that, but if you can like answer who is Jesus, what makes you a Christian, why are you a Christian, what has God done in your life as a Christian? And you, you can be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you. And you'll be like, look, here's five proofs that the Bible is factual and here's the evidence of the resurrection. Nobody cares. I know quite a bit and nobody cares. You know what they care about? They care about how God has touched my life and for how thank, they care about how thankful I am that my sins are forgiven and that I have a way that my guilt can be removed and that I have a God who I can call on when times are tough and that I have a God who has led me and directed me through very, very difficult things and never left me and I know it and I can experience it. They care about my story. And I think that some of you aren't ready. You, mommy, you maybe have a story, but you're not ready. 
you just kind of go through life. And if somebody said, why are you a Christian? You'd be like, oh, no. You know, I, uh, give me like an hour. I'll be back. Let me call Chad. You know, I mean, I got a pastor that you can talk to. Right? Like, they don't want your pastor. More and more, this is true. And we're going to talk about some of this in our annual meeting today. And we didn't plan it that way, but it will look like it. But we're going to talk about some of this. Like, people don't want a pastor to tell them what is right and what is wrong. People want to hear their friends' stories. That is what they buy into. That is what they cannot argue against, even with all the postmodern thinking in the world. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17 finishes it, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Peter says you need to live such a good life, so good That even people who make fun of you and mock you for the morality that you have as a Christian can't help but respect the life that you're living. And I think when we look at Christianity, we think like, can I just be good enough and kind of walk on this line and I'll stay on the Jesus side, but be close enough to these people over here that I don't offend them. But Peter's saying like, be so in love with Jesus on this side of the line that, that when people look at you, they can't help but respect it. They might make fun of it, but when they go home at night, they go, wow, that person is serious about what they believe. There is something different than them than every other person in the world. I don't know if I believe in Jesus, that he is the savior of the world, but I know that they believe it. And it's demonstrated in the way that they treat people and the way that they live their lives and how different they are from the rest of the world. This doesn't mean that we don't know what's going on over here. It doesn't mean that we start to get legalistic. It means that we're so kind and so loving and so Jesus-like that nobody can go, man, see their behavior. You know how, like, this, this just makes me so angry. Can I just tell you one thing? I didn't even put this in my notes right here, but this just makes me so angry at how so many stupid idiot pastors were just in it to make money they should have done something else but like and to like be able to lead a group of people and feel good about themselves or something and they they just didn't even they're just they're just bad people that are teaching people wrong things and and really in it for gain as Paul describes some false teachers in the early church and and you know what every time I tell people I'm a pastor it's like all of a sudden they have this image of me that is negative and bad and it's stupid It, it really makes me mad like I can't go golfing and have somebody added to my foursome and tell them what I do and continue to have a normal conversation because there's such like this idea about what a pastor is and these people have these pastors that have hurt them in their past and they look at me and there's like this negative thing. And here's the reality. It's not just pastors anymore. There's so many false Christians, so many Christians who don't care about Jesus That when you declare you're a Christian, people already assume that you're fake and you're legalistic and you're unloving and that you're going to yell at them about their political beliefs and and that you probably aren't living out your faith anyway. Let's buck that trend. Let's live so well that when people hear that you're a Christian, they just go, wow, I'm going to call them and ask them to help me move this weekend. You know, like when I have a bad moment, I'm going to call them first because I know that they will actually care about me. I can leave my wallet sitting next to this person and trust that they will never take anything. I couldn't do that with any of my other friends. I mean, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, look, the the final way you can defend is by living so 
beautifully as he also says it in chapter two of First Peter, living such a beautiful life that people will see your good works and glorify God on the day of his coming in Second Peter or First Peter two. Live so beautifully that people cannot go, yep, God can't be real. Look at their lives. Look at how they live. Can't be real. They don't even believe it themselves. But live so beautifully that nobody can deny that you truly believe and have decided to follow Jesus. I showed that boxer video because I think it's funny, first of all. I love that guy dancing, and the beat makes me want to dance, so I totally understood. But, but I showed that video because I think that there's so many people in a far more extreme way that are going to be surprised, destroyed when Jesus returns. And I think that the reason is because some people have not discovered the truth of who Jesus is. Some people have not made a decision about Jesus. And in reality, part of the reason that people haven't discovered and decided is because we as Christians have not defended by doing what is right all the time, by being ready to give an answer, and by uh, making sure that our lives are so beautiful that people can look at them and, and say, wow, I want what they have. They are different than everybody else that I know. Malcolm X said that the future belongs to those who are prepared. And while he didn't mean it in the way that the Bible means it, uh, the reality is the same. The future belongs to those who are prepared for it. The future, eternal life in heaven belongs to those who have discovered and decided upon Jesus. And that can happen more and more if we make a decision to defend the reality of who he is. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that every person here would take the time to discover who you are and then make a decision. And God, I pray for people in this room God, that, that, that know all about you and just know, but they've never decided to follow you, that they would come to a place where they would follow you this morning. And I pray for those of us who are following you that more and more, God, we would be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, God, when anyone asks us for a defense. Jesus, I just pray that you would move in the hearts of those who sit out in front of me right now. I'm gonna ask you guys, if, if you're a person that, that needs to discover, decide, and defend, and you know that you haven't been doing that just because you've stuck your head in the sand or because you have just kind of been wishy-washy on Jesus or because your life isn't one that defends Jesus, will you just, will you just raise your hand? Put your hand up for me. Jesus, I pray for every person in this room one more time and just say, let them discover and decide in fame because we wanna be prepared for you. Lord, we wanna be prepared for your coming and God, we want others to be prepared and that's where the responsibility of Christians comes in. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you did leave proof for, for the reality of who you are, that you showed us and didn't just tell us, God, of your greatness and your efforts to bring us into relationship with yourself. I ask these things in your name.
Amen.